Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria Carter-Sicosia. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our STFM Podcast. We've got a great guest in store for you today. We have Dr. Lars Peterson. Lars is the Vice President of Research for the American Board of Family Medicine. And some folks may not have known that we had a vice president of research and we're doing research at the ABFM, but there's so much to Dr. Peterson. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. He's going to tell you what brought him to his path and what inspires him or motivates him about family medicine. Lars, great to see you. All right. Great seeing you, Surya. Surya and I have known each other for what, 15 years since I became a Pisicano? Yeah, like that. 15 okay, years sorry. already. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting older. Yeah. That's fine. That happens better than the alternative as some of my patients say, <laughs> at least I'm on this side of the ground. Yeah. So um, thanks for having me. This is exciting and I'm uh, looking forward to today's conversation. And um, I guess in an introduction of who I am, I guess this is kind of how I tell people like my journey into how I became a physician and things like if you, you know, bumped into me at a conference, we had dinner or something. So why did I even want to be a physician in the first place? Uh, I guess is where to start. So, you know, this is kind of what you, you know, your med school application essay, like, you know, back when you were applying. And it's really kind of a dumb story. Like I, I wanted to be an astronaut originally, like most kids, like in the early eighties or something. And uh, it was in third grade. I remember my third grade teacher, when he, when I said I wanted to be an astronaut, he looked at me and he's like, well, you already have glasses and you're going to be ridiculously tall. So you're not going to fit in the plane. So you should pick something else. And I said, okay, I want to be a doctor. Like, I mean, literally that's it. And I just like, I don't know, there's no medicine in my family. Like I don't come from a family of, you know, family of doctors or anyone in medicine. So that was kind of it. And I just like stuck with it. And I grew up in a small rural community in Utah and all we really had were family docs. So if you want to be a doctor, like the role models I had, the people I saw, emergency room, outpatient, hospital, like everyone was a family physician. So it just kind of stuck with me of like, I want to be a family doc. So small high school, um, never really learned how to study, I'll put it that way. So part of part of my life journey as I went to college to the University of Utah, I, I did okay. I didn't do great. I didn't really get engaged with college for, I, you know, I guess I could, that's a whole other podcast about maybe why and other things. But um Bottom line is I, you know, did okay, got kind of, you know, okay grades and like, well, it'll work out for me. Life always worked out. And I applied for med school the first time and got roundly rejected. I mean, r- no interviews, no nothing. Um, and I did kind of learn how to study after med school, I guess, because I took the MCAT twice and got a really good score the second time, but not a great score the first time. And so I was able to meet with um, an admissions dean at the University of Utah kind of like review, like, you know, what are my chances here? Like, what, what was the barrier? Like, what do I need to do? And uh, she looked at me and she said, you know, we don't know who you are. Are you the person that got like that great MCAT score? Are you the person who got a B plus average? She's like, so go back and take classes and prove that you can get good grades. I was like, okay. So I went back. uh, So I went back, I was working full-time in a medical laboratory, like practicing docs out there. If you order like weird esoteric tests, you might've heard of ARUP or ARUP. I still send stuff for there. I worked there for four years in the flow cytometry lab. 
kind of crazy doing all the pipetting and I can still pull out. I have a patient who actually has mantle cell lymphoma and I actually started saying, oh, that's like 519. And I think that has 23. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, that's okay. I did it for four years. So it's still in there somewhere sometimes. And so I went back and took classes part-time. So I took two classes a semester and I, I promise three, this is getting to where how I got there. So I, I originally majored in... I originally majored in biology, like a lot of pre-meds, but I had a minor in anthropology. And so mostly like biological anthropology, like I was really interested in like, you know, bones and kind of bones and archaeology. And so I figured if I was going to go back and take more classes, I might as well do something with it. So I was like, well, I can change my minor into a major. And so I started taking kind of medical anthropology courses the second time around. And then I started, I took classes like health economics and uh, actually like a biostats course. And started thinking about what is around medicine instead of like medicine, like systems and structures and kind of like power and who decide who decided that? Like, why do we do things that way? And who decided that? And who has the power to make those decisions? And it started me thinking about not only I want to you know, really want to go be a doctor, but I would like to kind of understand systems and how organizations work and how things really are really done. And so on my second application to med school, I um, was looking for MD-MPH classes or MD-MPH combined degree programs. And um, Case Western Reserve University, right underneath their MD-MPH, had something called an MD-PhD in health services research. And I hadn't heard of health services research before, didn't know what it was, but from the description, it sounded like something I was interested in. You know, it's like cost of care, access, access to care, quality of care. And so I, you know, called up the program director and talked to him, kind of told him my story, said, oh, you sound really interesting. You should apply. And so I did apply and got an interview. And then just, I was their second choice because I had to call like every Friday for a while, but then eventually got accepted into that program, uh, which is pretty crazy in thinking about it in retrospect, going from no interviews whatsoever to a fully, to a fully funded MD-PhD program on my second try getting into med school. And so that it was really weird because actually I'd already been accepted at the University of Utah as a medical school before I got accepted at Case. And I'd already had a future kind of planned out of thinking that I just wanted to go back and be like a rural family doc. And so I'd already had a National Health Service Corps interview scheduled and like I had to call the National Health Service Corps and tell them I'm not going to come for my interview because I'm going to get a PhD, MD, PhD, and I'm not sure how often that happens. <laughs> So and I promise I'm still getting there. So uh, then, um, you know, going to Case was great. You know, Kurt Stangy was there. So if you're, you know, an M- if you're an MD PhD student, you say I'm, I want to go into family medicine and I'm doing research, and you are anywhere near the Case's campus, people will immediately direct you to Kurt Stangy, who is an uh, you know amazing researcher and person in his own right. And then, you know, with my interest in organizations and other things, kind of my parents were really involved in their community. Like I just got instantly hooked up into the FMIG was kind of the co-leader of that for a few years. And then the Ohio Academy of Family Physicians is fantastic. I, they still are. Uh, I mean, I was, got hooked in them early on in my days in med school, driving down to Columbus um, for all the meetings and got involved in their student leadership. I was, on the student, I was a student on the board of directors there. They got, helped me get on a double AFP commission as a student, which is an, a leadership opportunity that's available, which was awesome. We got me hooked into other networks and met people around the country. And then, you know, this is on top of this, you know, being a grad student and a med student, which also, you know, helps. And then 
I did a stint at the Robert Graham Center in 2005 as a month-long visiting scholar there and actually got my first uh, publications, not from my PhD work, but from my work at the Graham Center back in 2005. And then, of course, being a rural health guy, I did a dissert- my dissertation was on access to healthcare in rural areas and how community characteristics uh, associate or predict access to healthcare. That's a long answer, but what's the, I don't know. I'll pause there and see if you want to redirect or clarify anything. I must say, this is a story I've never heard before. And what's fantastic, particularly about family medicine, are the people that you meet, those that you work with, and folks that you learn from. We come from all different threads in a similar fabric that takes us back to the roots of family medicine. And you mentioned access. You talk about rural health. Now, I think you're the first one I heard who in third grade said, oh, you're telling me I can't be an astronaut? Well, I guess I'll just be a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And, and who would have figured, but look at you. And I'm so impressed by your career. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. But I, I believe what your story underscores is that if you have curiosity, interest, go explore. That's what I hear from your message here. And keep going. And it sounds like you did. You kept going and you kept going. And anthropology, I'm going to admit it. That is the one class that I dropped in college. I withdrew from anthropology and it was even a biological anthropology class. I said, "Uh, no, but I'm so glad there are people like you, Lars, who love it because it has contributed to your evolution and who you are and what you do today. So and let's not confuse. I am not a card-carrying anthropologist. I work with people who have PhDs in anthropology, and I am not them. Like I know enough about the terms and other things, but yeah, I, I could not pass as an anthropologist. <laughs> well, fine. You're the other kind of PhD. You're the MD PhD. Yeah. And that being said, I want to hear a little bit more how your journey has taken you to where you are today. Being the VP of research for the American Board of Family Medicine. My guess is a lot of people didn't even know the ABA film was doing research. Tell us about how you got to that place and what do you do every day? Uh, how did I get here, right? How do, how do most people get the jobs they have, Saria? They're friends, right? Or recommendations. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it goes back to part of the story I was telling. So I, I was in residency in South Carolina for well, reasons I could get into. Well, you, you're familiar with the reasons, Surya, but I can, if you want to hear that story, I could tell that story too. So I was just kind of on the traditional thinking about fac, you know, traditional faculty jobs, um, looking at academic family, family medicine departments. Uh, I'd already started talking with chairs. There was even a, a I think it was, it was an ADFM, the Association of Departments of Family Medicine meeting in Charleston when I was a second year resident. And on the same day, I snuck down to the same hotel lobby to meet with two different chairs hoping that they wouldn't see me talking to the other one in the lobby. And that worked out in terms of like, you know, planting the seeds is thinking about a career. And then I get this email seemingly out of the blue from Bob Phillips, who had been the director of the Robert Graham Center when I was there uh, the first time and actually went back again. Um, they tolerated me so much. They let me come back as a fourth year med student to do another research elective and emailed me and said, Hey, Lars, you know, the ABFM is looking for a research director. I, I think you should apply. And I kind of laughed. I was like, 
you know, I'm still in residency, man. Like I assume an organization like the ABFM, like really wants someone with like a track record and like experience. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, no, no. I, you know, you're an MD PhD. You've already got publications. You got experience doing large data analyses, all those things. I, I, I think you should just apply. Not knowing, you know, now in retrospect, I know he was like talking me up actually, like a little bit in the, uh, the ABFM. So I did. Anyway, I applied and got through all the in-person, in you know, the phone interviews, the in-person interviews, and in another kind of crazy part of the story, on my last day of second-year residency, I get a phone call from Lexington, Kentucky, and it was Jim Puffer calling me to offer me the job, and they were willing, you know, wait for me for an entire year um, to finish residency to come here. So that's how I got here. So this is actually, my, you know, been here ten years in another two months. This is my first job, like coming out of residency. So why does the ABFM do research? Though is a different question. So they apparently, I, this was the second time they looked for someone to lead research at the ABFM. Uh, 2008, I guess they looked and been told to me they just couldn't find anyone because there was no history of doing research at a board and people couldn't really conceive of like, what would you do with the ABFM? Like, you know, that's a thing. So how Bob got involved was the ABFM actually contracted with the Graham Center, you know, who was part of the AAFP and said, well, we have data on family physicians, like for the practicing docs out there and the residents, you know, when you sign up for your exam, there's been this exam registration questionnaire asking kind of, you know, if you deliver babies, you hospital medicine, you know, are you an independent practice, uh, et cetera, like a long, you know, not too long, but a list of questions. And so they gave that, not gave, but shared that data with the Graham Center and the Graham Center effectively became kind of the first research wing of the ABFM to get a lot of the studies um, out on kind of like what family docs are doing organization or practice. And then they started again to looking for a research director and found me to build the expertise in-house. That's where we see those one-pagers in the AFP journal as well. Yeah. Right? That so, work is coming so out of the Robert Graham Center. Yep. So the, yeah. So they did a lot of the kind of the one-pagers that show up in the American Family Physician. Um, some of the early ones used ABFM data. And then we started, or they started before me, a series in the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine. There's a policy brief just kind of a similar vein. And then, so the ABFM does research to support its mission. So one, to evaluate the effectiveness of our certification program, like do the things you do actually lead to better care? Also, you know, do people like them? How are they interacting with the program? So that's kind of our number one goal. And then two is looking at the broader mission of the ABFM is to ensure that family physicians have the you know knowledge, attitudes, and skills to provide high quality care. Kind of what system are they working in, right? We're not in vacuums. It's not like we're all you know cowboys riding the range and I'm going to do whatever I want to whoever I want. No one can tell me what to do. You know, we work for healthcare systems and insurers and credentialers. We have electronic health records and other things that we have to interface with. And how do those impact what family physicians can do? And how do we need to you know tailor training or support different things to enable us to do what we do best, hopefully. So we have a research interest in that. And of course, residency, the project's coming out, what are physicians learning in residency? How does that then follow them into their careers of interest to us? And of course, still, you know, what family physicians are doing and, you know, are they contributing to the quadruple, now quintuple aim? So we have done a lot of work on burnout and wellness. I, I think that was a, a, a great description of the wide variety of research that's going on, why it's important. We heard your story from third grade. So that's fantastic. Great. We know all about Lars. And now we know that Lars was indeed probably above the hundredth percentile for his height 
even in third grade. So, you know, you didn't just sprout up overnight. Every class photo, I'm on the back row in the middle. (laughs) I know right where to go every time they start taking photos. (laughs) I can relate to that because I'm always in the front middle because I'm always the shortest. So, um, so, so this is great. And frankly, Lars, your story can be somewhat intimidating. You're an MD, PhD. You have a number of publications now and have done a tremendous amount of research though you started kind of sounds like falling into it, almost fumbling and then exploring your curiosity. And I think that's a really important part of this story. In fact, I think about, first of all, medical students, medical students with an interest in research. What does that look like? Residents who are required to perform scholarly activity. Well, I remember being a faculty member and a chair being held accountable for scholarly activity and the publications and presentations that were going forward, I think it would be really helpful for our audience to help them understand where do you get started? So, because not all research is the same, right? Please tell me, yes, yes. the scholarly activity right. comes in many different forms. So talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I like to think that the archetype of research and I, so one, I can, I can, can I back up just a little bit about the specialty of family medicine? Like Please. this is this has been a long running discussion in family medicine. I mean, I remember I mentioned I was on a double AFP commission back when I was a medical student, and I remember conversations in there. I think it was the commission on the forerunner of the current commission on science. I think it was called like clinical practice policy and research or something back in the aughts, as I like to call them. And I remember having discussions about like, well, we need family physicians to be engaged in research, but we can't call it research because it's going to scare them. And there is like back to our roots as a specialty back in the late 60s, you know, I mean, it was like the intellectual basis of family medicine was like, we're going to get out of the ivory tower. We're not going to be a bunch of eggheads. We want to go like take care of the community. So there is some kind of something in the family physician DNA of like, no, no, no. I just want to take care of the folks and research is like something I don't, I don't know, like other people do. Like I, that, that, that's like not our thing. Like, and it's from, again, from the anthropological perspective of like how that's followed us as a specialty and kind of followed us into who we are of a lot of people are worried about the research infrastructure and family medicine. But that being said, like people get scared off of it because they think of the archetype in their mind of like, well, research is like an NIH funded randomized control trial or research is only bench research. So if I'm not like killing mice and looking at proteins and things like I'm not really doing research, like that's research. I'm like, no, research can be just looking at your kind of a little bit more advanced or different than quality improvement, but just thinking about how do I make it, what kind of changes in a practice lead to better care or, you know, doing surveys or interviews can be research. I mean, it's, it's all research. It's all scholarly activity and kind of the pursuit or generation of new knowledge, test hypotheses and help us understand the world. And you don't have to do that by getting an MD, PhD and writing an R01 grant to the NIH or or ARC and getting a couple million dollars of funding, you can do that on your own, potentially, or with collaborators. Um, and, it, and it can be scary and intimidating. But, you know, as you mentioned, like, there's always people around to help. Uh, there's plenty of resources, even in our field, to help, too. And I got started, I mean, I was in classes, of course, as a grad student, to help learn, like, skills, but still, like, networking and thinking about ideas and people who I still work with today. Like, when I started going to conferences, I mean, there are 
obviously at every conference, at least most of the conferences I go to in family medicine, like SDFM's annual uh, research or annual conference was just a couple of weeks ago. And there's a lot of research there. There's a research committee, posters, I mean, people you can network with and find who are doing similar things. I still talk to people I remember meeting at SDFM in 2004, I think was the first SDFM I went to maybe. And then other meetings that I went to, just finding people out who I'd read their papers and kind of wanted to meet them and talk to them about what they're doing. And usually when you're a student or a trainee, like people will kind of be more forgiving of like dumb questions or, you know, what might be a dumb question in retrospect, you're like, I can't believe I asked them that. Like, but people are pretty open, particularly in family medicine. That's, that's usually nice is, you know, family physicians tend to be nice <laughs> and people who go into family medicine tend to be nice. And then just networking with other students too. I mean, I know there are still people who were similar levels of training and going through residency and research training when I was doing the same, who I'm still friends and colleagues with and have done work to as well. So don't neglect those student mixers, I guess. And then so NAPCRAG is also a great resource to get started. And they even have like a trainee focus group or a program. I think it's called like the Rising Stars. And so there's like a pre-con where you can like get together with other students. They bring in like mentors, kind of talk about how you get started and what research life is really like if you want to have a career focused on research. And NAPCRAG um, stands for? Oh, well, NAPCRAG now stands for nothing. It's, it's like JCO. So they, they, yes. So NAPCRAG is the, well, the North American primary care research group, but they ran into a problem where the Canadians were bringing all the Brits and the Brits brought the Dutch and then they brought the Aussies and the Kiwis. And so it's really more international than just North American. So they just now go by NAPCRAG. <laughs> now it's a brand. Right? Now it's a brand. Yeah. The brand unto itself. And it's their 50th anniversary this year. So it's hopefully going to be a big party in uh, Phoenix this year, uh, just before Thanksgiving. But NAPCRAG, so to your point, your question about you know community docs. So um, NAPCRAG also has a program called PACE, patient something, I forget what PACE stands for. I'm sure I could pull it up and Google it real fast, but it's actually trying to get clinician patient dyads um, where they actually bring like a physician and one of their patients to NAPCRAG to think about research and how research is actually impacting patients or is really patient oriented. I mean, they've been doing that for at least six or seven years with some grant funding support is a one way a physician could get involved. And then if you wanted to get started too, the double AFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians has a national research network where physicians can volunteer. You can join. You don't have to be a double AFP member to join the national research network where your practice can sign up or you can sign up, where if you wanted to get involved with being a part of a clinical trial or a study of, hey, if we do it differently in our practice and collect data on, does that improve like our continuity rate or reduce our no-show rate or even like drug intervention? Um, you can sign up and do that through the AAFP. And also at a lower, not a lower, not a lower level, a different level, there are P local PBRNs, which is a practice-based research network. I think there's over a hundred in the United States. Uh, some are states-based, some are regional-based, where practicing physicians can sign up to contribute data, participate in studies where you don't have to quit your job or figure out how to do a two-year or one-year research fellowship. You can participate kind of while you're working and then participate in writing and papers. And the AAFP, I'll say the National Research Network also has like advisory committees, like if you have a particular interest, like you develop clinical expertise on like thyroid disorders. And if they're doing a study on something with thyroids, you can sign up to the experts to help guide research that the National Research Network is doing. I think that's a great point. There are all these areas out there that I didn't even know existed. So how do they get there? And in follow-up, I looked up the PACE while you were okay. speaking. PACE stands for Patient and Clinician Engagement. 
pace, patient and clinician engagement. So we have that, but yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you get signed up? How do you jump in? Lars? I think a double, I think a double FA research network, just, there's literally, cause I looked at it today cause I wanted to make sure I wasn't mis- speaking mistruths or, uh, you know, false information based on my memory. There's like a button. It was like, click, like, you know, Google it and find the WFP national research network. There's a join button. You can just click and it takes you to a form. You could sign up. And then there's, you know, questions. If you want to email them, you can email them as well. If you're, if you're curious and they're, and they're good people. I've actually. I should probably put a plug in here. I told you I wasn't going to do a lot of plugs. The AAFP Foundation through the National Research Network actually does sponsor a program that's now in its third year called Rhapsody. I'm totally going to blank on what that's called. Totally. I, I should remember what it is. But it's, uh, it's a program that's actually geared towards practicing family physicians who want to do a research project and learn about research and have what we describe kind of as a burning clinical question. Um, where you can apply to the foundation um, to get a grant up to like $50,000 to conduct a research study in your practice. And you get support from the National Research Network to conduct the study. You know, you don't have to learn how to analyze data. They analyze the data for you. And there's been a few of those projects, like we're in the third year of practicing family docs, learning how to do that. Um, and it sounds so like you can find out on the website. Then, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing some interesting stuff like intimate partner violence screening for men, food delivery kits to teach people with chronic, I think it was focused on CHF or diabetes, about like, you know, teaching them how to cook to see if that like helps like with healthy eating choices to reduce um, utilization or, you know, emergency department utilization. There's one like a chronic using acupuncture for like chronic pain control. And yeah, some, some interesting things that aren't things I would do as part of like whatever big big R research that I'm doing, but are, you know, really practical for patients. And, and you talked about big R. Oh, so I want to, oh, yeah, big R oh, because I, more, I find that's make, interesting. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I want to get back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I want to get back to the big R and little R, what that means and how part four maintenance of certification may play into that little R. Okay. There's also CIRA, the council of academic family medicine, which is the C Educational Research Alliance. It's a joint uh, venture of STFM, AFMRD, NAPCRAG, and I'm leaving someone out, ADFM, where you can, if you have an idea of, you know, a research study you would like to do, questions you would like to ask of program directors, like family medicine residency program directors, department chairs, uh, family medicine clerkship directors, and there's a general membership survey for STFM and NAPCRAG. Um, they do those surveys at least one or two times a year. You, it's a competitive process, but there is like mentorship available to help you like develop questions. Like if you have an idea, but you're not quite sure how do I write research questions or you know survey questions, there's mentorship that they provide to help people like develop your questions, and then go take you all the way through if your questions are included on the survey to help you like write and analyze your data and you know then write the paper. So that's another avenue of a place you could get started. See, there's a lot. There that's is so fam- much. Well, and that's just family medicine. Like if you're interested in like particular clinical niche, there's a lot of other societies and things um, that have other like programs available, like through the endocrine society or diabetes, um, et cetera. So. Well, and I have a feeling that people who listen to this particular podcast, they might have to replay because there were a whole oh, lot of acronyms and you did a great job of sorry. describing them and the partners that were involved, but there's a lot of information in what you just shared. And I want you to go back. I'm going to hold you accountable to that big R, little R. What does that mean? Big R, little R. And I'm going back to part four maintenance certification. We all are required to do it. And I have found it to be incredibly rewarding to be intentional about looking at how I practice 
how our practices practices. Yeah. So big, big R research is kind of like that archetype I alluded to, like the NIH funded, grant funded kind of big research, right? It takes lots of money, lots of time, lots of resources sometimes to do studies like that, like testing a new drug or testing a new mechanism of delivery or trying to understand large natural experiments. That's kind of what people think about when you think about what would perpetuate this archetype, you know, like what folks at Harvard do, right? You know, like researchers, like, ooh, like, you know, oh, you're a researcher. But that's not all research. I mean, if research is, you know, generating new knowledge and trying to understand how the world works, that's, like I said, a lot of other things. I mean, there are papers that get published, interviews, surveys, like focus groups, there are other ways of generating new knowledge and trying to understand what's happening in the world that don't involve the big R. And then to the other question about like part four, you know, the performance improvement activity uh, for your ABFM certification, it's always kind of been a debate on like quality improvement versus research, right? So research like little r or in the big R is kind of like I've mentioned a couple of times, like generation of new knowledge. We're trying to understand how the world works. Whereas quality improvement or performance improvement is kind of testing how can I make things better? So it's not maybe necessarily generalizable knowledge that can be applied everywhere, but trying to understand for our system, how can we make things better? And that does involve scholarly activity because you've got to think. So there's a lot of similar things. Like you got to understand, well, what is the problem? Like, you know, what are my, what are, what are my goals and objectives? Like I want to improve diabetes care. Well, okay. But what specifically there's like eight quality measures for diabetes? Is it A1C? Is it blood pressure? Is it doing foot checks? Is it doing eye exams? Is it all of the above? Is it medication adherence? Is it vaccination rates? You know, like what part are you trying to improve? And then you need to know where you are. So where are you and what's your goal to improve and how can you measure it? And then understanding the process. So like in big R research, just think about your theoretical model. If you're like, okay, well, what are you studying and what's the mechanism underlying that? Like, how do you think this gets to that? And where along that pathway is your research informing the relationship between these variables or this? Like, so similar when you do a quality improvement activity, usually there's like, you know, either a fishbone or you do like the flow diagram of like, okay, the patient's got to check in and the front desk has to talk to her. And then the message goes back to the nurse and the nurse does this. Of trying to understand like how things flow and where you can intervene on it. A lot of those skills are kind of transportable, just using critical thinking and trying to understand what the real process is and how, where things get stuck or where you could potentially intervene. And so that can be, or they are related in a way. Quality improvement then gets into the goal is not necessarily to generate like new knowledge that you're going to transfer it everywhere else, but just to make things better locally. And there's different requirements about IRBs and when you do, sorry, IRB, Institutional Research Board, I'm trying to be my own acronym police here. So when you do formal research, you have to get ethical approval from a board that says this is valid research. You're not doing anything nefarious or, you know, tricking patients or putting people um, where the risk harm ratio is imbalanced where you don't have to do those kind of things for quality improvement because IRB can't stop you and your practice from changing the way your check-in process works at the front desk. But if you want to publish in a journal, sometimes they require an IRB statement, um, but they there's different ways they accommodate that for quality improvement. But that's still scholarly, you know, trying to think about how to make things better, which I think most researchers would say their goal is to make things better in some way, but just do it at a kind of a different level. I love it. I don't know, I, did I that help? That, yes. <laughs> okay. In fact, 
it really sums up for me our session today, which is make things better. How to make things better? How do we get there? And it is a journey, no doubt. We heard that since the third grade for you, and then onward through college and in the in between stage. So, so I want to close with this. For those that have listened to the very end of this podcast session, there's something very special that I want Dr. Peterson to share with us today. And it's his wisdom on Fluffy Butt Fridays. Dr. Peterson, (laughs) what does Fluffy Butt Friday mean to you and your family and making things better for the rest of us? So my wife, who's a family physician and she's a DO, so she's, we're mixed marriage, as we like to say. I live um, just outside Georgetown, which is a small, smaller community just north of here. So it's about 20 minutes for me to get from my house to the office, but we have five acres. So most of it's grass, got a garden. And when we moved here, we decided we really wanted chickens. So we ended up getting chickens back in 2013 and there are Facebook memes and things about chicken math. So, you know, if you got four chickens, all of a sudden you have eight chickens and we've had as many, I think it's like 22 chickens. Uh, we're currently at 16. And so I think it was 2017, maybe, or maybe it was even 2016. But I think it was 2017 that my wife was just tired of the news cycle and bad things happening in the world. And just like her Facebook feed was just full of just, bleh. so she's like, you know what we need? Chicken butts. So I, I don't think she, I think she saw it somewhere else and adopted it. I can't give her full intellectual credit. I don't think she came up with it on her own, although she's smart enough she could have, but she started something called Fluffy Butt Friday where every Friday on either mine or her, and we tag each other, we put up pictures of our chickens' butts on, uh, you know, out and around the yard and just, you know, do some stupid saying. I don't even remember like the last one, like girls are fighting for, here they are like going for their snacks, like go get yours and have a happy fluffy butt Friday. It just as like something light and fun to, you know, you're scrolling on your Facebook feed. You're not just like hearing about invasions and shootings and other stuff. You're like, Oh, it's a chicken butt. And it's got quite a following. Um, it's, it's interesting. So it's something we enjoy. And I, as I tell people, like, think about what's happening to get those photos. If you were my neighbors and you see me or my wife, like running around our yard with our phones, like trying to like get an angle on a chicken who often is very suspicious of why you're behind them. Um, so that's, yeah, part of it. It's just being fun and stupid, I guess, a little bit and just trying to keep it real. <laughs> Well, I love it. It makes my life better. And I look forward to Fridays for fluffy butts. I always look forward to seeing the character and the personality of your chickens. And I I think that's what's important is that we keep it real and life is meant to be fun. And, And this is what I love about family medicine and people who are engaged in the specialty of family medicine. We have fun. And you don't have to be serious to be a researcher. In fact, when you let loose a little bit, you probably have more creativity and you too can have a fluffy butt Friday. What do you say? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Just be, be curious and engaged, right? And think about what's fun and exciting. So. I love it. I love it. Curious, engaged, fun, and exciting. Lars, thanks for joining us today. This was thanks great. Thanks for having me. I've loved hearing your life story and how you have ended up in Georgetown, Kentucky with 16 fluffy butts. So yeah. that being said, thank you. Thank you again. And we are grateful for you joining the show today. All right. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the SDFM podcast, produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.